This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm uh, upset still. I'm still oh, upset, Kyle. You I'm missed the opportunity upset. to say GARP, and this, that's uh, all you say. No, I don't want to acknowledge it at all. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film The World According to Garp. 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 Garp? Yes, Garp. Sounds like a fish. When I get older, losing my hair, many years from now. Hey, Garp, you want to play? Yes. Not tonight. I have a headache. Every night you have a headache. <laughs> Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. My name is T.S. Garp. What's T.S. stand for? Terribly sexy. I used to be terribly shy, but I changed. If I be of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions, of course, help us continue this show since, you know, the machine isn't helping us pay for these movies. And I really yes. wish they had this month. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there as well. We're starting, of course, a new month. So at some point this month, we are going to be talking about Pink Narcissus. Dave, Yeah. before we get into talking about this movie, which I know you're so eager to talk about. I'm ready. I'm ready. We need to advance the plot here a little bit. So, of course. Oh, fuck story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you look so disappointed. DDS, DDS. <laughs> yeah, we are pretty convinced has been embezzling funds, and so right, I right. had that meeting with her last week. Oh, I met with her. What yeah, we like? talked about this. She probably will become a character on this podcast at some point, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as soon as one of us can do a voice, not that yeah. she's not a real person, but you know, I'm you know. a dentist. <laughs> right, I got it. My name is Didi. <laughs> I love drilling. <laughs> Nothing like more than looking into a gaping mouth. It did not go well, Dave. She mm. actually shot me in the neck with some Novocaine. And so that was an awkward dinner bell that I had to uh, pick up at the end of it. So This feels like uh, the inspiring story of uh, a Bush song. So I think well, it's the inspiring story of T.S. Garp, Dave. Just wacky <laughs> things happening in my life. Does this happen to me? Luck is an interesting adjective. All right. So... She gave you a shot. Yeah, she gave me a shot, and I haven't seen her around here for like the last week. So this is this, this story is unfolding slowly. If you so. get Novocaine in the throat, what does that mean? Okay, yeah, it's unfolding. Oh, it just like, means like uh, all your limbs go blah, and then you fall into your soup and have to blow bubbles. Soup. Mm, right. That's what we were having a week in 1982. <laughs> going out for that dinner was the gag. soup, yeah. soup, soup. All right. Well. We'll get back to that. Uh, we had uh, a letter, an email. It wasn't oh, a letter. Right. <laughs> we, we had an email sent into us from Jeff here this okay. week, Dave. Yikes. Uh, talking about our night shift episode Ooh. from last week. Probably not positive. No, brought up two things. Okay. One that I'm like really confident we actually did talk about, mm-hmm. but I don't want to throw Jeff underneath the bus that he didn't mm-hmm. listen properly. He, <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, he mentioned, fault, Jeff. he said like, you guys mentioned how night shift 
was rated R and that seemed weird, but it's because PG-13 didn't exist did yet, exclamation up. point, exclamation point. He left That's two right. exclamation points. PG-13 is kind of a weird thing, mm-hmm. though, in principle, right? But, what does that actually mean? Well, it's in between, right? And it, it is true. I know, but... Like in 1984, Temple of Doom comes out and they realize, well, this isn't PG. Like, kids should not be coming to this movie. Well, but a kid R can also watch a seems... man get his heart ripped out of his chest. It's fine. But R seems also weird because it's like, well, it's not like like aggressively, overly, overtly sexual or anything like that. So it's, okay. there needs to be an in-between. And that's how the PG-13 Well, here it evolved. was AA for a while. But yeah, okay. Uh, anyways, yes, correct. It was rated R. And we were questioning why it was rated R. It was because there was no such thing as PG-13. And Night Shift, of course, a couple swears, a few naked breasts, cannot well, be rated PG at that point. a prostitution ring. Okay, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's, that's not nowadays, family view. Nowadays would probably be a PG-13. I think we can agree. Probably an animated feature from DreamWorks. <laughs> yeah, I cannot wait until the first Pixar movie shows peen. It's going to be great. Just I mean, the, it'll be flaccid to start. But, fidelity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second thing he brings up is like, I also can't believe that with Kyle being such a Broadway fan, he never mentioned Burt Bacharach's Broadway show, which is oh. a little bit weird. Can I just admit to something, though? Okay. it's a good point. Yeah. Dave, you consistently Put throw me Kyle off my game co- because co- I will mention something and then you like look at me confused like, but this is, everyone knows this. What, what are you talking about? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm pretty sure I probably mentioned something about Burt Bacharach and like, I've never heard about this song in my entire life. I'm like, what do you mean you haven't heard about this song in your entire life? And it just throws me off and then I forget to mention the thing I wanted to mention. Why are you pretending in your preamble that you were going to mention this? And just, why don't you just I was. accept I was gonna, the fact I, I that was you got actually called gonna, out? Bring up promises, up. promises, Dave. No, Jeff, Jeff caught you, and uh, mm-hmm. you're wrong. I mean, simple, simple facts. If Jeff's listening to this right now, mm-hmm. uh, thank you. Is anybody listening right now? Have you heard of the musical Promises, Promises? Of course not. Of course you haven't. <laughs> uh, book by Neil Simon. We've talked about Neil Simon here before. Based yeah. on The Apartment. I pulled up the Wikipedia. I do not know this information specifically off the top of my head. Uh, premieres on Broadway in 68, the West End in 69, and then there's um, revivals in 70, 93, 97, 2008, oh 2010, God. 2014. Like, this is a show that gets put on all the time. Music by Burke Bacharach. The three numbers, maybe, the, like, the, the, the house is not a home. I don't know if people, like, super know that one, but it's become kind of famous. The two that for sure you should is I Say a Little Prayer. Mm. That's pretty and then i'll never fall in love again mm. are the two songs that were written for that show and became pop standards burt Bacharach. burt Bacharach. uh still alive at like 94 95 something like, like that if somebody should wear a cravat it's burt Bacharach. <laughs> uh that sounds like a rhyme almost we are gonna be talking about of course the world according to garp here this week i do think that there is three actors we should just briefly touch on and of course the director as well, just some history. Robin Williams. I can't actually believe we have not talked about Robin Williams on this show yet. Well, you keep you kept this in the past. I'm well. Ninety nine. No, you would think that he would have. There would have been a movie in ninety nine that we would have talked about. But uh, yeah, it was like ninety eight. What dreams may come? Is that ninety eight yeah, or something? I think we. I think I looked it up too. Again, it's like two huge movies on either end, like ninety eight and two thousand. Yeah, <laughs> he, yeah. he was in, and we just didn't talk about anything in ninety nine. I feel like we actually brought that up at some point. But who cares? Let's move mm-hmm. on. Well, Rob Williams is one of, like, he's a super mega mm-hmm. star. I mean, he, he's big enough that it's not even about celebrity. I feel like he was essentially culture forming for America yeah. in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, I grew up 
with everything from his early work. I mean, I, I watched reruns of Mork and Mindy what? for whatever reason. Which would have aired its last episode, I think, two months 84? before this movie debuted. No, so. I think it went to 84. No, that was the Happy Days. Happy Days went to oh. 84. Mork and Mindy went to 82. Because I did look that up. Good Morning Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the one after that? Dead Poet Society. Captain My Cat. Jesus Christ. I think it was the first film I cried in. Other than Transformers. Uh, this is like really right before Robin Williams like really hits big. Of course, he had his like stand-up specials that was being popular. He was popular as Mork, of course. But like, yeah, in two years, it's Good Morning Vietnam. And then Dead Poet Society, I think in 1990. And then you have Mrs. Doubtfire, Aladdin. And then you go okay. with that huge run of stuff that is just like, yeah, culture forming for yep. impressionable use like we were at the time uh, and becomes the biggest thing. Yeah. Started fading. Probably actually like early 2000s started disappearing. I think the fact that he pops up in the night, uh, what do you call it? Night at the Museum yeah. movies as not a cameo, but sort of like a character actor just tells you he kind of lost a little bit of that popular footing. He was getting a little older. And yeah, I think the last... Not in some, isn't some is Al Pacino. One hour yeah. photo. Remember that? I Holy do. Shit. I, I went to the theater and saw one yeah. hour photo. What a weird movie, right? I love that movie. Uh, from what I remember, it's been like 20 years since I've seen it, probably. I was say. But, and then he tragically uh, has mm-hmm. the uh, the death. And I think that shocked the world. I mean, it's pretty gruesome. He hung himself, which sucks. But it turns out he was losing, he was literally losing mm-hmm. his mind. Um, yeah. And the other thing about him, I think, you know, with that stereotype of stand up comedians and, and sort of a troubled emotional state, he was, you know, a drug addict, alcoholic. I mean, if you watch, if you watch his energy, the dude's mm-hmm. a maniac, right? He's got like a, he's got a mania to him well, he as is, far as he his performance. The, so. He is the epitome of that description that we keep coming back to. Like there's a certain, I guess, personality to comedians, which is like anyone who knew him. And I've actually even listened to long form interviews with him, which is he was actually very quiet. Like outside of cameras or going up on stage, he was just very quiet, reserved, respectful, would listen a lot and ask like really insightful questions. If he's on letterman or leno or something like that it's like like going at like 120 percent is like i'm gonna do 75 different voices and like word association and like just go all out and like sweating in like five minutes and stuff like that and that's just he was putting on a show because he understood that that's what the people People wanted wanted, i guess or it was the way he expressed Mm -hmm. uh how he wanted to perform either way that's robin williams for me and then uh he was the correct genie Mm -hmm. in aladdin Right? The good one. Yeah, don't the one. don't read up on how um, <laughs> Disney screwed him. He got really mad at them, actually. But yeah, uh, but yeah that, uh, that whole story. But yes, he was the genie, right? All yeah, of that, so, most of that dialogue is ad-libbed by him, which you can kind of tell, I think. So, I, yeah, I, I love him. I think some of his films do hold up. Of course, you know, things like Miss Doubtfire, like as we saw with Night Shift, comedy from a bygone mm-hmm. era does, doesn't age well often. But yeah, I agree. You can watch Goodwill Hunting right now and still have a good craze fucking amazing that movie he's great right? in that movie yeah and i keep i've had dead poet society bookmark i don't know if it's on netflix anymore but i really need to rewatch watch that it's just I should see that um that's the funny story have you ever watched the graham norton show like the the clips yeah. still sometimes yeah. get posted the british talk show guy yeah. there's one that for some reason every few months seems to make a rotation around and it's uh, robin williams talking about his oscar win for goodwill hunting and he's asked by Graham Norton's like, so did this, did that really change your life? He's like, I mean, for like a day, maybe a week, it did. Like, it's such a, an emotional high. It was such a cool time, a great night, got to spend with friends. And for a week after that, it's like, hey, congratulations on your Oscar. Congratulations on your Oscar. 
And then by the end of the month, it's like, hey, Mark, like as he's walking down the street again, it's like everyone forgot about it. So it's like, yeah, it doesn't really change like how people perceive you in their minds, which is which is pretty funny. Maybe he's just hanging around with a lot of old people. Yeah, because that's not my association. (laughs) There's a lot of uh, ifs and stuff like to this. But like if he was not dealing with like like you said losing his mind was it dementia i forget what the actual thing is uh, going on they said dementia originally but it turned out to be something called louis body disease mm. which uh has this symptomatic thing right. of dementia but there's like hallucinations and short memory loss and all kinds of weird shit if that was not happening i really do think that he is one of those actors that was probably primed to another uh, resurgence have another resurgence type of thing i think he was a good actor right like regardless yeah. of comedian or, or dramatic roles not every movie is great i'm not trying to say that i uh, will talk about one that maybe isn't uh, later today <laughs> but uh I, his performance Spoiler is usually good he's like usually keyed yeah. into like the performance side of things but another person whose first film this is she had been in one tv movie and a couple of filmed plays but her first film is glenn close so yeah. what do we want to say about glenn close well, I don't know. She's uh, also pretty famous. A little bit, the thing about Glenn Close is that, I mean, people our generation all know her name. We've mm-hmm. seen many of her films, but for whatever reason, it's a little bit, actually, I'm trying to think, was it Kevin Bacon? There's something about how she's present in the industry. She's part of so many powerful films and like important things. She's sold out, but I don't know if I think of her as sort of like top echelon. <laughs> celebrity star it's weird again i know you don't care about oscars but she is the one person that people like how has she not won an an academy award yet like she's been nominated so many times and every time she's according to wikipedia yeah every time she's nominated it's like oh well this is the year this is the year they're going to give it to her and then she never gets it she continually does not win i'm going to make a really weird comparison and i don't even know if you're going to agree with me probably not which is like 1982 to me seems like well, she wasn't around before then. Like it seems like she's been around for longer than 1982 mm-hmm. for some reason to me. It feels like, oh yeah, she probably started in like the early 70s or something like that. Oh. And she probably did on stage. I feel like she's the same age or around the same age as Meryl Streep. And Meryl Streep has been around yes. since like the mid 70s and she wasn't. So it's just mm-hmm. this weird thing in my head. Similar to Kate Blanchett. That's the comparison I want to make. Who's similarly like... Kate Blanchett does not start making movies, doesn't make her first film appearance until like the late 90s. It's like, really? Like, it feels like she's been around so much longer than the late 90s. And then was like, you know, does a few movies and then is basically like, well, that's Kate Blanchett. Oh my gosh, of course she's going to bring gravitas to this movie, even though she's only been in the film industry for five years. And I think the same thing is with Glenn Close. It's like by the late 80s, like, oh, it's Glenn Close. Of course, it's like, that's Glenn Close. And she's going to add some respectability to this film, even if it's like a, a sex thriller with Michael Douglas. (laughs) <laughs> well, you, you know, uh, you know why? I, I actually think I have uh, a reason. Starting from this film, mm-hmm. I think she gets nominated for an Oscar for the next five years. Okay. And Kate Blanchett's very similar. It's yes. like as soon as she gets in, she's getting nominated almost every project True. that she does. And so, in terms of sort of, uh, what's and then the wins word? for like a, the weirdest role, but that's another yeah. story. <laughs> the popular psyche, it feels like, oh well, every year I hear this woman, or and there's some men that are like this, yeah. consistently being named as one of the greatest actors of their generation. When in fact, it's like this five year run. Oh, which is not to diminish the fact that they're actually great actors, because there's some people. I mean, I like Marissa Tomei, but uh, Marissa Tomei mm. or Hilary Swank, whatever, that kind of blow up at the beginning and then have this right. long lull, whether they get typecast who knows uh, smarter people maybe can analyze that so 
Glenn Close and Kate Blanchett and some of these people do have the chops, as they say. But I think that's why when I also looked at the filmography, I was like, how's this her first movie? And then you look at all the ones that follow and you're like, well, yeah. this is why it seems like it because every single one is like a famous film, right? Yeah, so There's weird. I mean, the other theory I have, I, and, and this goes against a little bit of the Kate Blanchett, because Kate Blanchett is quite haughty and beautiful, like yeah. haughty, uh, but she has like quite a, a beautiful face. Not that Glenn Close is ugly, but yeah. Well, that's the thing. She does have a little bit of a, a masculine feature, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. Androgynous a little bit. Kind of like a Tola so, Swinton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, there, what, there was a big movie she did where the producer tried to get her fired, Jagged Edge, uh, oh. because she was too ugly. And she'd already been cast. So she and the director right. barred the producer from being on set. So the mm. producer tried to to destroy Jesus. the film. And they, it was actually successful. But that I think that's the other problem from the industry is that Who directed no matter Jagged how, Edge? Uh, I didn't write that part. One second, then. one second. But Meryl Streep had that problem. We I saw was going to say, years. Meryl Streep had the same thing. Yeah, where it's like, oh, well, you're not traditional beauty. It's like, well, you don't need to be if you can actually fucking act. Whereas, you know, you'll put Amber Heard in an Aquaman okay. movie. Like, it's, okay. it's a fucking joke, right? But anyways, I think that's part of it too. I'll keep bagging on the Oscars. It's not necessarily a beauty contest, right? But mm -hmm. I think there's, I think that plays a little bit as well. Uh, Jagged Edge was directed by uh, Richard Marcand. Do you uh, remember that name? Does that name sound familiar? No. Well, it should because he directed episode six, Return of the Jedi. Nah. <laughs> John Lithgow. <laughs> what do we want to say with John Lithgow? Oh, I love John Lithgow. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up with Third Rock from the Sun. I was going to so say that's my first, like, besides Footloose. Right. Yeah, Footloose. As the angry dad. Angry guy who slaps uh, his daughter. Pastor or whatever, yeah. Really, Third Rock from the Sun is like my first like core memory of John Lithgow. That cast was amazing. And mm -hmm. uh, I think I like him for that show because he, you can see it. He does everything in it. He can be dramatic. He can be mm -hmm. totally zany, slapstick. He can do everything. Oh, really? He can do everything. Well, can he fall in love with me? Didn't think so. And then, of course, the meme uh, Saturday Night Live with, I love that, with... Uh, Dean. Yeah. Uh, John Lebowitz? John Lovitz. Lovitz. Lovitz and Lithgow. You know, I feel like, to my mind, there's a bit of a gap. I, I don't remember seeing him after Third Rock from the Sun in anything that mm -hmm. sticks out in my mind, but he also had a bit of resurgence in the 2000s. I just couldn't name anything he's done recently, well, I think to be honest with you. He, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know for movie-wise, he there's a movie where he's gay with somebody, and I can't remember who it is. Him and Alfred Molina, maybe, uh, that had some kind of like awards play, but uh, probably the next one is like the two polar opposites on TV was, yes, him being zany, wacky, and Third Rock from the Sun. And then he did a season of Dexter where he was a serial killer no. and I think also won an Emmy for that or at least was nominated and was so terrifying and creepy that people were like, oh, he's like this great actor can go back and forth. It is kind of like the Robin Williams thing where like if you want him to bring the menace, he can. Or yeah. if you want him to be like super goofy weirdo, you can do that too. Yeah, I've never, I actually never watched Dexter. Mm -hmm. So I tried watching the first season. I was like, this is not a show made for me. And no. I was fine with that. It's like other people can enjoy this and like it. I yeah. just don't. <laughs> just uh, make your true crime podcasts. I don't right. need a, you know, a series, but a serial killer who I'm mm -hmm. supposed to empathize with. We're going to be able to talk a lot more about his role in this film because I think we do need to unpack it a little bit. Mm -hmm. The last person I think we should talk about is the director. George Roy Hill, and I swear I'm going to try and not go off on too big of a tangent here, but this is so similar to me, like uh, Pakula was for mm -hmm. Sophie's Choice and for Clute 
And what's the other big one he did? Anyways, for both of these directors, all they the presidents make, men. Yes, exactly. All the presidents men. They make like two, three. I would say culture-defining films. Yeah, not a big, single person on the street would be able to name you those two directors. <laughs> I just don't know why. What, what, how many movies does it take for people to know? Oh, that's Spielberg, or that's uh, Scorsese, or uh, that's whomever you want to pull out. Like that's a Nolan. Like people start to know those people's names. Mm-hmm. So why do these people not? When he has made uh, The Sting, Bush casting the Sundance Kid, and if you're Canadian, Slapshot is a big <laughs> cult no. classic up here. So I was like, how do people not know who George Roy Hill is? You know, when you named, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan, Spielberg, they shoot with a very uh, consistent tone. Mm. And I think that, you know, the idea of an auteur. So, even Kubrick, it's not like every movie can be overlaid on top of each other, but they all have a specific tone. A similar tone. feel. Yeah. And uh, these, both these directors, are that isn't the case. You know, I, if you said the guy that directed Butch Cassidy directed The Sting, directed Slapshot, I would just be like, that's impossible. Even <laughs> though I love The Sting and I love Butch Cassidy, I would never associate those two films together. Mm-hmm. If you said the guy that did Clute did, did Sophie's, Sophie's Choice, Choice, I'd be like, how? All right. All right. Who directed Yes, Giorgio? Was that John Huston? No, that was uh, Schaffner because he did uh, right. Nicholas and Alexandra, remember? Right. Like- so, you're like, is that possible? But that's the reason why they, they don't get that name. Yeah. Uh, thing. I mean, it's it's uh, not ironic. What is it? It's, uh, it's too bad that a director can have such range, but then lose their notoriety for that talent. But I think that's why, you know, the idea of a celebrity is, is a strange thing. You know, currently, for example, like a Tom Cruise film is one tone right now, but he has done like rom-coms and all this other shit. It didn't work very well, but now he just wants to throw himself off a bridge and he wants to do it on film. And that's what you know you're going to get. You know, Top Gun's supposed to be good. Did you see that they're going to split the next Mission Impossible into two films? I I knew that a year ago when they announced it, but yes. You're a nerd. But like, you know exactly what that movie's going to be. So Mm -hmm. everybody knows what a Tom Cruise flick will be, right? Make a pause right here. We're going to go and have a break. Mm. so that we can thank some of the sponsors and people to help make this show continue to go. And after that, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the world, but it's according to a man named Garp. I forgot we were reviewing a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, I want to think that on your deathbed, you'll also only be able to say- you could just end it right there. What an (laughs) asshole. You'll you'll also be able to say one word, which is your last name. It'll be like, Yun, Mm. Yun. Because I think they keep mispronouncing. Are you like, you're just imagining that I'll cut out my, cut out my tongue or something? Uh, Satire. Satire, Dave. I should let you know, of course, that Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, this episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you were a business owner, a busy business owner with Mm. more meetings than hours in a day, you were calm and collected with your group Mm. benefit plan because it's taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device. Maybe not every device. That Tamagotchi you still have in your office desk drawer is probably not going to do much, but it makes it easier for you and for them and that's a good thing. So to learn more and explore your options, head over to ab.bluecross.ca. You alluded to a keychain toy mm-hmm. from the 90s, Al. <laughs> yeah. It's a way to age yourself. Although it was in turning red. 
So your your Rubik's cube will not help you out with. I just saw a YouTube video with uh, speed Rubik's cube, but the one kid was like nine. Yeah. Yeah. If you study it enough, you can do those in like three seconds. You can just. Uh, like, no, I've studied it and I can't solve it even with a tutorial. So uh, not me. You dumb. I can't though. Do it. You dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about pot power. With PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters, uh, Kyle, mostly in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And this episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. And uh, let's talk about, I feel nature-y, let's talk about Your Forest. Your Forest is a podcast about the natural world. Hear stories about the environment, renewable resources, conservation, forestry, hunting, fishing, and more. This is a podcast for those who cannot live without the joys and wonders of all wild things. How's that? Was that what? emphatic? Yeah, you're, you're doing a me. Uh, we can take your forest and make it our forest. Ooh, you know what? See, I should write should copy. They the, should pay me to write copy. I was going to say, well, we've been talking about that for a while. Also, they should just change uh, their website to our forest. But you know what? Their website actually is your forest podcast. Dot com. Mr. Bean's back with a movie about a bee. It, but it's not Mr. Bean. It's Roll. It's Roll. Atkinson. Rowan. Ro Rowan. Whatever, Rowan. Whatever his name is. Okay, Dave. All over. Let's say you are minding your own business, walking down Never the street. Happened. Yeah, already can't imagine it. And yeah. then some youngster, some young kid, a whippersnapper, some might even say. <laughs> Comes up to you and says, you're an old man. A young do-goodnik. Yeah. You're, you're an old man. I have a DVD copy of The World According to Garp. What is this movie about? How would you describe the plot, <laughs> such just, as it is, of The World According to Garp to I this just say, person? You see that garbage can next to you? you just I'll take this and I'll put it in, in here there. for you and save you the time. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Do, so, should do I do a synopsis of what I feel about it or what it's about? I, let's do the no, dry. This is a plot plot description. Like, what is it about? Okay, it's a story of a neurotic writer, his overbearing proto feminist mm -hmm. mother, who's probably a robot, and death. You know? Yeah, I guess. I would Weird. say so. I don't, honestly, I don't know. Okay, we are going to get into what our feelings are on the movie. It's probably sounding here right now that i am more negative on this movie than what i really am because i don't outright hate this movie i don't like this movie but I'm, I'm not like seething with hatred dave i tried because you gave me you gave me so much shit in our uh sophie's choice episode that i didn't read the book before we started that episode <laughs> what do like, you mean I'm going to go to my local <laughs> library and get out John Irving's The World According to Garp. I have it right here on that my is desk. A big, it's a hardcover? Huge it's book. fucking huge. Yeah. Um, and I put in my order and it didn't come before I went on a quick little vacation to BC, which I was like, I'm going to have all this free time to read it. It free came time. after. So I've Kyle only been able worked. to read the first hundred pages. So this, I'm sorry. I still have not read the entire book, but it gave me yeah. a good sense of the kind the of the structure. The tone. This is right. the 40th anniversary edition that Ooh, came out in 2018. Nice unabridged great with a forward from the author with an apology yeah, so there's a forward yeah. by john irving in this book yeah. just to kind of leak out some of my Gross. points of view on this movie a different phrasing yeah i think the most of the failures of this movie in my opinion come from the tone not matching up like the tone mm -hmm. of the book does not get translated into the film again in my opinion i do want to read you just briefly here so now we're on audible we're an audible exclusive here right now <laughs> That might be quite lucrative, 
I get paid to narrate every TikTok video. So he does this introduction to the book, and this is in John Irving's own words. So there is one paragraph here in the first bit. He says, in 1978, when Garp was published, I thought I'd written a period piece. Garp is an angry and a comedic novel, a feminist novel, and an ode to the women's movement, which is at once exalted and satirized. But above all, I thought Garp is a period piece. I was wrong. The world according to Garp isn't prescient, but sexual hatred hasn't gone away. It's not good news that Garp is still relevant. We should be ashamed that sexual intolerance is still tolerated, but it is. Then he goes on this screed at the very, very end that I do want to get into. He says, In the early and mid-1970s, when I was writing Garp, I thought my country would never be as divided again as it was then. I was wrong. In 1968, Nixon had been elected on the promise that he would end the war in Vietnam. He didn't get around to it right away. When Saigon fell, I'm falling asleep. Yeah. When okay. Saigon fell in 1975, President Nixon, facing impeachment, had already resigned from office. Nixon, of course, should never have been elected in the first place. Sound familiar? Oh now, as of this writing, we have President Trump, a narcissistic Vulgarian, a xenophobic blowhard, and Did a fascist Vulgarian? Vulgarian. Ah, uh, okay. I was like, wow, racist. In October 2017, Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions ruled that transgender citizens were not protected from workplace discrimination. Sessions argued that Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination does not encompass discriminations based on gender identity per se, including transgender status. Yes, several federal appeals courts have ruled against the Attorney General's war on the LGBTQ community, but President Trump and the Department of Justice are clearly hostile to LGBTQ rights. We live in sexually intolerant times, and that's why this 40-year-old novel isn't out of date, but it should be. The World According to Garp was written in what I believed was a sad time. Isn't this a sad time, too? Isn't my country more divided today than when Garp was a work in progress? It's true that The World According to Garp is a protest novel, yet when I was writing it, I never imagined I'd still be protesting 40 years later. So that is his interpretation of what he was trying to communicate with the book. I know that's going to be different than how the movie interprets the source material. Not really. But I wanted to get that out of the way a little bit to set this conversation up. In your opinion, Dave, what were your thoughts on this movie? It made me very angry. But Mm. I mean, just to address uh, the forward, I think it's very relevant because it just shows how arrogant John Irving is. How the fuck do you have a man mansplaining what feminism and LGBTQ rights mm. ought to be? It's that's what this that's one of the biggest problems with this film. And he is not LGBTQ himself. We should no. also put that out. Obviously. You know, when you watch the writing, at least from a screenplay perspective, and how this thing is shot, there isn't a single redeemable theme that actually supports what he pretends this novel is supposed to be about. You know, like for example, Glenn Close has to play this woman who eventually becomes this figurehead of the femi- of a very hard-edged feminism movement, but she's a robot. There's nothing empathetic about the way she appears on screen. She says the most strange, like, strange scripting words, like, oh, that's lust, that's lust. Like, I, I don't know. Well, where does that come from? That is not how human beings speak. Um, no, but okay. So it's hard to watch. I, I, um, I didn't enjoy my time with this. The biggest thing for me, though, is... You cannot kill a kid and not address it in a film. Sure. It, 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 that's the part where I just got really angry because 
Luckily, that comes near the end, but sure, yes. Well, that's supposed to be the climax yeah. of all of this uh, impropriety, if that's what the moralizing lens is supposed to show. There's all of this sex that all of a sudden becomes uh, central to their relationship. It, there's an affair. Mm-hmm. And as uh, his wife is sucking some guy's dick, they fucking get into a car accident. And instead of addressing that the youngest boy dies, they make a joke about her biting off the dick of the of the guy. That's bullshit. That's why I'm fucking angry. Mm-hmm. That is not something people should have to sit through. It's a fucking joke. And it doesn't matter to anything uh, at all. It uh, The movie should be stricken. <laughs> not on moral grounds, but it's just a dumb, dumb narrative yeah, like, uh, flaw. I, this is the part the where I wish I had finished the books. I, I would love to know how that is handled in the Apparently book Apparently the book is better. I've yeah. read some things on the internet too, but ugh. My biggest thing, because I don't really have a great rebuttal to, to that, because I also did not enjoy watching this movie for the most part. I do think that both Robin Williams and Glenn Close are doing some great work in this. In fact, I kind of wish in a way that we just focused on, I know that's not what the book is, but their journey of becoming writers, because that was the part that I was actually kind of enjoying the movie. The tone is all wrong. The book is meant to be this satirical, whimsical tale about a guy kind of traveling through life and these things are kind of happening around him. I was trying to think of like a good comparison to this. Uh, underneath a YouTube video of the actually the Siskel and Ebert review, there are some people who made comparisons to some other filmmakers. But I think they hit this tone better, which was the two Andersons, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. In both of their movies, I, I more, more like Wes Anderson, those people also do not feel real. Like you enter into a Wes Anderson movie and like, oh, these are not like real people, but they're being moved around and they're there for maybe a satirical point or like a thematic point. You kind of understand that from from the hop. Same thing with Paul Thomas Anderson. You can have all these intersecting things and things can just kind of happen. We had a bit of a disagreement in our Magnolia episode, I remember. The frogs. With the frogs. Mm-hmm. For me, I think that is set up early in the film so that I can accept it. For you, you didn't agree. But for me, at least, there can still have these, these random things, quote unquote, happen and I still am bought into this. This movie, unfortunately, tries to play everything straight. Like this is actually happening these are real characters who are like really going out in the world but then what happens is that it feels so disjointed to me because nothing seems to lead into the next scene like it's so bizarre mm-hmm. to me it's like oh i guess okay we're here now and like oh okay this thing is happening to this kid and oh, i guess he's grown up now and glenn close doesn't look any older and she's only four years older than than, than robin williams so it looks weird to me and now like, like i guess we're going into like this marital affair storyline i guess and again like, yeah, now they're killing the kid like nothing seemed to actually feel like he was going on a journey the the, the other novel i actually they just popped into my head which interestingly enough George, what's his name? George Roy, Roy Hill, uh, also adapted, which I actually like to take a look at just to see. Is uh, Slaughterhouse Five? Have you ever read the book Slaughterhouse Five? Is that Vonnegut? Vonnegut, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna say yes. One of my favorite books, personally. But similarly, a guy who things are kind of just happening to, mm-hmm. who's unstuck in time, so he's now bouncing around the different points of his life, but is equally as like satirical and has a point of view and, and that sort of thing. I never felt that in this movie adaptation of this book. And I started getting so frustrated by it because like I don't care about anything that is happening in this movie. And I know I should be. Like I should mm-hmm. probably feel something that the mother gets shot, that he gets shot, that this kid dies, that anything is happening in this 
movie and all i kept doing is like there's another 40 minutes left in oh, this movie sure. like i can't yeah. i can't get over this so for me it felt like a bit of a a slog to get through honestly i'm yeah. gonna forget about this movie most likely in like a month from now that i ever saw this movie outside of some isolated performances i would i do want to talk about the john lithgow character chalice goes great in this yeah i do think george roy hill does have some cool compositions in certain scenes but like outside of a handful of stuff like there's not much i can recommend this movie for i mean that's interesting i mean to your point uh, about the tone in which the shot i don't even think that he has great framing his classical framing some Mm -hmm, of the shots mm -hmm. suddenly stand out but if that's not what the tone of the film is supposed to be then they're shit framing because it pulls you in the wrong direction and as i'm listening to you kind of describe what you think ought to have happened. Like, so for example, if Wes Anderson or somebody like Sam Raimi even, yeah, you know, yeah, somebody yeah. with really strong, a surrealist aesthetic took a hold of something like this. Even like the Coen brothers probably could have yeah. done this material better. Right, right. Yeah. Where it's like, it, it's meant to feel almost, not plastic, but like Marianne's puppeteer-like. Like something. But off kilter, right? It's like, the, yeah. the, this is a heightened person in a heightened world. I'm not supposed to be taking this at complete right. face value. Right. Could this have worked? Maybe. You know, maybe you can play this visually so that I'm not sitting there thinking, like checking my watch and wondering why, yeah, why am I supposed to care about Mm -hmm. these really weird random people doing really weird random things without much underneath it? And part of it is, I mean, like looking at the size of that novel, anytime you have to cut a full novel that's over 500 pages into 100 120. Yeah. You're in big trouble because you have to pull so much out and rely on so much dialogue yeah, or a shitty voiceover. This one doesn't luckily have a narrator, but it's just really hard to kind of package that into a film in general. Either focus on one of the storylines and like really dig deep into that, like whether that is like the uh, the movement that's being formed around the mother's novel and like... um forget what their names are, but the people who cut uh, out their Ellen, tongues and stuff like Ellen that. Ellen something, yeah. Uh, the Jamesians or something like James, that. But like, Ellen Jamesians Yeah, or but I think, like I think you could have performed like a, some sort of satirical point of view of that. I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying like all white men are bad. That's not what I'm trying to say. All straight uh, white men are bad. It's but, pretty much fact. Yeah. But like... <laughs> <laughs> Something that kind of undercuts that forward from John Irving. In chapter one which is like a very long like background of the mother character. So you get a lot more filled in about her motivations and her family life and all that kind of stuff. That's not in the, in the movie at all. I'm not joking when I say that there is two full paragraphs talking about like her breasts and her backside and her like sexuality. Like this has nothing to do with anything. What are you doing? You cannot tell me that this is a feminist novel when you are objectifying this woman from page one. Like, and so there's a little bit of, I think, a disconnect in like his intentions and the reality of how it was written. And one of the catchy ideas now is the idea of a male or female gaze, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sexualization, et cetera. One of the basic sort of core events that drive the birth of Garp is the quote unquote rape of a, Mm -hmm. of a incapacitated airman for her to impregnate herself Mm -hmm. without being attached to a man. That is a weird it's a weird. weird thing to start off with. I mean, right? Yes. I, I, yes. I'm actually, again, I've not read the whole novel, so maybe they do address this eventually. They never actually call it rape in the book. So I'm actually Where pretty impressed a little bit that in the movie they actually call that out. I'm like, because this is rape, that what she's doing. Like, this is yeah. not cool. But they never kind of address that, at least in the first hundred well, pages that yeah, I've read. Maybe they, read, cared, maybe they do. The but, dean or whatever. Yeah. But I was going to say, like, you could sort of see where they're going with, like, she's taking 
autonomy of her own body sacrificing someone else's but like she's taking it upon herself so I, I see like maybe what they're going for i watched this other movie this week another movie i'm actually convinced you would probably hate but i ended up enjoying it for what it was um although it has problems with uh, trans representation in it which <laughs> is interesting again is another comparison to this movie have you ever seen brian de palma's dress to kill from 1980 no, I know the name for some it's, reason, but I have not. It stars uh, Michael Kay. Michael and, Kay. and it, um, it, it's very Hitchcockian. Like it's set okay. up as like that type of thriller. Not actually a lot of dialogue. It's really told a lot visually and stuff like that. Isn't that a Brian De Palma thing? Okay, anyways. It yeah. is, yeah. He was actually called like the new Hitchcock for a while. Like that's what his little moniker was. I only bring that up because in the very beginning, full frontal of Angie Dickinson, first of all, which is interesting because she's in her 50s at this point. So it's like, oh, that's interesting that that's the person who gets like naked in this movie. But that whole entire setup to that movie is her like acknowledging that she's sexually frustrated and taking it upon herself. Like I am an, a woman in the 80s and I have suffered through like the last 50 years and I'm going to take it upon myself to go and find pleasure and it's weird though that that in this novel to to show like female empowerment it's like all lust is bad and that's the point of view like for me it feels like such a conservative point of view I know I keep yeah. bringing this up but it's like it's sex is bad lust is bad and you should feel bad for being attracted to people and that's mm -hmm. the feminist movement I'm like but that's not really what the feminist movement was about even at this time it wasn't about that yeah I mean we're not we're not women and so I can't speak to women's exactly, experience. Yeah. I mean, and it's so muddled now. You know, when you read some of the op-ed pieces about the anti-abortion movement in the United States, obviously it's a convoluted problem. Not only are there sexual politics, there are genetic problems with this conversation too. You know, the idea of uh, a female body and menstruation and pregnancy and having these things where they have no choice but to inhibit some of these roles. Yeah, it's exceptionally strange. And no man could ever understand that. And this is why I, you can't put a strong bar and say men should never write about it, but they need no. to be more careful about what the tone they take, maybe, right? Maybe pass it in front of a single woman and be like, does I this make so. sense? Although, you know, uh, who knows? Maybe he passed it on to somebody who is exceptionally uh, puritanical. Mm -hmm. uh, Glenn Close, apparently, her parents were super rich, but they left to be in some weird uh, puritanical convent or something for uh, mm. for her youth. It was just a Columbia House membership they couldn't cancel. You know, maybe he knew some super uh, right-wing woman who was like, oh, this is great because sex is bad and we need to figure out how to live a totally rational and detached uh, life. I don't know. Well, um, I, I, I guess I will say too, just um, I'm listening to You Must Remember This, which is talking about the erotic thrillers of the 80s, which is why I was watching these movies to keep up with what they're talking about. And there was this interesting point, this inflection point where there was the hard right trying to take essentially any type of sex out of movies at the time. And the really far left leaning feminists of the day I'm, I'm very much like glossing over a lot of intricacies here but we're essentially like any type of heterosexual sex in movies is basically rape and so we shouldn't have this in movies and so it's weirdly how like the two totally opposed ones were aligned on this one thing of trying oh. to change what movies were about and how they were portrayed so i could see perhaps that um it was kind of this perfect storm when i was young i would say there's no political spectrum as a straight line it's a circle Sure. Right. And so we talked about, uh, we got into argument what fascism is. Like, how do, right. can you have a socialist and a communist become a fascist? Well, when you do the extreme thing, they just become the same. <laughs> they sure. become the same. We see that right now in the US politics. We've, now Canadians go in this way too. We've made everything so bipolar. They're becoming the same people. They're just yelling and like hating. And, and ultimately, 
acting the same way, but saying different things. It's a, it's fucking madness. But, you know, on the flip side, we've tried middle ground stuff and apparently human nature can't handle it. <laughs> I don't sure. know why. Well, I mean, this is, this comes back to my point of like, no one wants to, and, and social media is the worst place to do this, but like nobody wants to have that nuanced conversation about like, well, nothing is wholly good. Nothing is wholly bad bad necessarily there's some a lot of times this shades of gray or this middle point where we have to have that like can this person who was like a very instrumental part of your life both have done great things for you and also been a bad person to other people and the answer is yes that can actually be a thing but people always want to jump to like nope they were only a bad person or nope nope they were only a good person there's no wiggle room on either position it's like well it's more complicated than that but people can't deal with complications they need to hell hold on to one side or the other I mean, uh, we just had, at, the, at least at this uh, time of recording, yet another fucking disgusting uh, school shooting. Mm-hmm. But I saw a quick interview with the shooter's mom. And it's infuriating emotionally, especially as mm-hmm. a parent. You know, you don't want to humanize some kid who can buy a fucking machine gun, trap a bunch of kids in a room and start shooting them. It, it, that's like, it's supposed to be so reprehensible that we aren't even supposed to acknowledge it. But that person was a human being. <laughs> And whether they were, you know, not, they'll never be justified for killing other people, in my opinion, on my value judgment, but something happened. You know, there's no such thing, in my opinion, as pure, pure evil. Right. There's something that happened in this wake up that life. day and be like, well, that's what I'm going to do today. Right. right. Or the devil came and was like, you all commit these atrocities. It's just not that simple. But nobody wants to do the work to find that story. And even if someone did, nobody wants to read it. Right. And I think, you know, I don't know if we call it societal laziness, but it is a lot of work. Uh, to be in the middle, you have to constantly be in this balancing mode where you hear both. Series. I keep, you know, with the Johnny Depp thing, I want to read articles about why Amber Heard might be right, but nobody will publish that shit. Well, I, it's interesting you say that because I have actually seen some of those articles. I can't find anything. Because that's what the whole, I mean, I don't want to talk about them. I really no, don't. No, no, no. But I'm like, just in principle, the concept of The it. whole core case is whether or not she is legally able to say that he is an abuser. Right. Which she's already admitted that he is an abuser. Right. <laughs> like that's well, what this whole trial he, is about. I don't know. I mean, that's the whole other thing. So yeah. yeah, not to get into the nitty gritty, but I will say from my experience of finding op-ed pieces, none of them talk about facts of that case. If they're pro Amber Heard, they talk about being a woman in principle and mm-hmm. they don't talk about what's going on in the case, which is, I think, part of the problem. Nobody wants to look at uh, the complexities using facts. We want to use emotions. And I, I think we need both. This is this is actually part of the, I've recognized, especially in the younger generations than me, and, and, and I understand the impulse. It's like, just because somebody is like LGBTQ does not make them a good person. Right. And it's like, and that's, a, again, again, and it doesn't make str- them a bad person either. Yeah. No, they're all I, individuals. That, I, right. I know that that's the, that's the flip side, but it's like anytime like a celebrity or an athlete or whatever comes out, it's like, oh my God, now we can like celebrate now them, hero, and like promote right. them. They're a hero now. It's like, well, let's hold on <laughs> just a second because if when and if they disappoint you, you have to hold them as being humans here as well. The LGBTQ community has been so prejudiced against for, for decades. I think that's the impulse. Like, oh my gosh, you're a part of us? Well, then you're great. It's like, well, you again, there can be shades of gray. There can be wow. people look Spacey, at Kevin Spacey, right? right? right. Just look at Kevin Spacey is the example of that. Since we're in the hot water, you can look at any social movement. It's the same thing. I don't know why we as individuals need to worship other human beings, right. but That's, it's part of our makeup. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not immune to that. I don't know who I worship, but I'm sure uh, there's somebody that I irrationally think is above. Actually, that might not be true. I'm pretty cynical about everything, but uh, because I I can't name somebody that I think 
is pure. But, you know, like, this is why I'm Jesus. against... Uh, fuck Jesus. <laughs> no. Uh, what I... This is why I come off with the anti-cancel culture sounding like such an asshole, but you can't make blanket statements. Like, defund the police. Not every police officer is a bad person. Not every black person was arrested innocently. It's like, it is way more complex than what we want it to be because it's impossible to have what Twitter used to be. How many characters? 120. It's impossible. It's impossible to have a 120 character argument if we're going to be doing something complex and nobody wants to read academic papers anymore. And so where do we find ourselves? It's, it's very hard to have a nuanced conversation about anything. Some people will say, well, this is why podcasts are so popular. Podcasts are just as binary (laughs) as Mm -hmm. any media form because it is very difficult for two people on opposite sides of the spectrum to want to sit down and talk about a movie. But we are right, is really what we're trying to say here. (laughs) Well, look at our haters on YouTube, man. Like, you would think that we were telling them what to think. You know, like, we're like, oh, I didn't like this movie. Aren't you telling people what to think, Dave? It's like, this is a, like, this movie's terrible and people should feel terrible for liking it. I think you've said those exact words. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, who cares? I'm like a random dude living in Calgary. Who, Who gives a fuck what I think? Enough. To tell me to go fuck myself or that my kids should get harmed. Remember that comment? Like, yeah, what yeah. the fuck is wrong with the world right now that people will take any well, anything and make it so personal? That, that is a separate issue because people can hide behind keyboards because they don't think of them yeah. as people. They think no one's going to read weird, them. weird, man. Here's some, an, another topic that we're really not geared to have, really, or like... <laughs> we're going to have it. But or have, sure. a, have a pass to talk about it. But it is... John Lithgow's performance as Roberta in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I will say, similar to Tootsie, which I thought, you know, handled the idea of a woman dressing up in a dress fairly Amen. well. Yeah. There's a couple yeah. of things that don't hold up, I don't think, in Tootsie. But for the most part, I think they handled that pretty, pretty well. Reasonably empathetically, at least. In an empathetic way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say, in Dress to Kill, I do not think that is the case. I think it's like, well, <laughs> this is not great representation about what's mm-hmm. going on here. In this one, like... If Garp was tried to be remade today with one of those filmmakers we've talked about, and they're going to try and do it in a, in a better adaptation, they would probably, I would hope, go after a, tra- a person in the transgender community to play that character. But it's 1982, and that's not going to happen. Let's just be frank about that. It's just not going to happen in 1982. They get John Lithgow, and I would say for a 1982 film, it's pretty... What was what the word you just used? Empathetic or whatever. Empathetic. Yeah, yeah. It's an empathetic portrayal, I think, of a transgender character, which is not, oh, let's make fun of a person who's dressed up as a woman. You know, I think this is the other thing that is so frustrating about this movie is that it's clearly capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. And it just does not use that for any of the other protagonists in the film. And I, uh, I think uh, you and maybe some other people that interpret this film a different way are right in that if the book is designed to be much more uh, surreal and and yeah. satirical. It would make more sense to shoot it this way, but John Lithgow at least can draw out this human aspect of it. It's like some of the things are cartoonish, you know, oh, I'm hormonal and all these things yeah, are, yeah. are also offensive to the idea of what a man thinks a woman is like. Yeah, that's the part that doesn't hold up all that well. But, you know, having uh, this man who is converted into a woman have all of that complex sort of struggle to fit into society. That's pretty advanced for 1982, that conversation, right? Yeah, I think some of the conversations they have are pretty advanced. Yeah. Um, And I do think it's really interesting past like the first meeting, like between him and Robin Williams, like it's really never addressed ever again. It's like, yeah, they're just friends. Yeah. Past that. They just let it. Helps raise their kids and all that kind of stuff. Like it's it's not a big deal. So I, I don't know, maybe the book 
I, I you know, I'm not going to read it. So I won't, I won't, I'll put that, you know, to underline this There's thing. There's three copies in the Calgary library system. Just so I you will, know. I will give John Irving this much blind credit. If you've got 600 and whatever pages that thing is, it's likely filled. I mean, with a lot more breasts, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But it, clearly there's a lot more thinking underneath how these characters are developed. And for it to capture as wide an audience, even if it's 1978, uh, it must be filled out better than this film. I think this is the problem with this movie for me is that everybody comes off very plastic with the exception of John Lithgow in my mind. And I just can't get behind any of us so that when the tragedies happen, they're more offensive than driving to a greater worldview. And I, mm-hmm. I just couldn't. I just Yeah. Couldn't. I mean, in, again, in a weird way, I think they do cast this really well. Robin Williams is the person you go to that wants to be like, at least at this time, like wide eyed, optimistic, can be funny and charming at certain Start points, but collapse, also like yeah. really upset in other ones. Like, I think the casting is is spot on, but uh, we're already going long. So let's do some backstory here, Dave. Has that ever stopped you before? This movie opened on July 23rd, 1982. It is rated 3.4 on Letterboxd out of 5, 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb. It has a 63 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 19 critics, it has a 74%. And from 10,000 plus users, it has a 78%. Available on both DVD and Blu-ray, you can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. Its budget was $17 million, so just over a Yes Giorgio budget. And its uh, box office was $29.7 million, or 88.9. So made money. Uh, It wasn't like a staggering hit at the time, but it it made money. Its plot description is a struggling young writer finds his life and work dominated by his unfaithful wife and his radical feminist mother, whose best-selling manifesto turns her into a cultural icon. Well, Dave, it is time for us to play everyone's favorite game. Guess Guess that that tag. It's when I don my favorite blazer, get the long microphone that Bob Barker used to have, and... Dave has to guess from these three options I'm about to give the posters that you see of of, of films when you go to see a, a movie in an actual movie house a palace perhaps you see a long row of posters for upcoming films and on those movie posters often you'll see a little tagline that makes you enticed for the movie that is about to come out in a few months time fills you with a yearning yearning <laughs> so two of these are completely made up by myself one of them is real Dave is it it's a garp. His name might be nonsense, but the way he looks at the world isn't. Or, this is T.S. Garp. You won't believe the way his life plays out. Or, is it, Robin Williams is Garp. He's got a funny way of looking at life. Wow. I'm going to go with two. So, this is T.S. Garp. You won't believe the way his life plays out? Yes. Incorrect. It is actually Mm. the last one. Robin Williams is Garp. He's got a funny way of looking at life. Oh, they gave him that much name. name I just... I. I pulled back on them because I wasn't sure if he was famous enough I don't yet. Know, but yeah. They should have said like, Mork is Garp. That's what they yeah. should have said. Well, I guess, yeah, Mark and Mindy was already famous. So that makes sense. Uh, this does star Robin Williams as T.S. Garp, Glenn Close as Jenny Fields, Mary Beth Hurt as Helen Holm, and John Lithgow as Roberta Muldoon. We haven't talked about Mary Beth Hurt. Anything you want to say about her? There wasn't much. I mean, you might know her better because it looks like she's more a stage actress. So mm-hmm. I didn't get much here the only thing that i have a question about yeah i'm not necessarily to use uh it looks like she took her last name from being married to william hurt for 10 years but oh interesting okay i uh but then she divorced in 1981 but kept it i don't because she has a different uh birth last name i can't remember i didn't write down interesting so i thought that was kind of interesting oh by the way that's the other thing we didn't talk about in night shift last week my favorite fun fact 
Do you know that Michael Keaton's name isn't actually Michael Keaton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's Michael, Michael Douglas, Douglas. But he had to yeah, change his last right. name because Michael Douglas was already a, an actor. That's a weird anecdote that he just chose it by flipping open a phone book and, mm. and found K or something, but whatever. I mean, Michael Douglas, that's, uh, that's a hard name to live up to, yeah, even in the 80s. You Michael Douglas II. You just can't. No. I mean, it's not like Kirk Douglas was a nobody. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> Um, oh, shit. Well, the cinematography was, was by Miroslav Andrzejczyk. His top four on IMDb, of course, are this movie. He also helped shoot Hair in 1979, mm. A League of Their Own in 1992, I can the see that. and Amadeus from 1984. Oh, One of my favorite movies. I haven't seen the movie in such a long time, and I can't find it unless I buy it. So yeah, You have uh, to buy it, and it has to be the director's cut, which adds in 20 minutes, which yeah. frustrates me, but whatever. It's written by Steve Tessick, based on the novel by John Irving, and is directed by George Roy Hill. There's not a lot I'm going to get into here. The year is 1978. John Irving had been a novelist for the last decade, about to publish his fourth novel, which was The World According to Garp. He had a bit of small success, but it was this novel, really, that broke him out huge. He became wealthy because of this novel, because it was such a huge international bestseller. It did include some autobiographical elements, the bigger one being that he also never met his father, um, and his mother didn't tell him a lot other than he was a, like a soldier. But it's this book that makes him huge. Uh, because of the popularity, of course, Hollywood comes along. They hire this screenwriter, and the first person they hire tells them, no, this is unadaptable. You cannot make this into a movie. Correct. Correct. <laughs> So then they bounced to Steve Tessick, who was coming off of an Oscar win for the film Breaking Away. Anyways, he writes the script and then they hire the director, George Roy Hill, who we've already talked about, you know, does Butch Cassidy the Sting, Slapshot. This is really nearing the end of his career because he would make two more films, basically retire in 87 and then never made another movie for the rest of his life because he died in 2002. So it's a good 20 some years that he's sat on the fences. And that is all that I found about <laughs> the making of this movie. There's not a whole lot about it. I'm just looking at Breaking Away. The only name I recognize is Daniel Stern. Dan that's who it is. I knew there was someone we had talked Dennis about. Quaid, Dennis Quaid is in it. But mm -hmm. uh, honestly, uh, I don't... You said we were running long, but I actually, I feel like we... I don't have a lot more to talk about. I mean, there's still mm -hmm. nuances like biting a dog's ear. I, you know what I don't like for me is that Sorry, is that when I read reviews, let's say on Letterboxd, uh, or I read how this thing is packaged, they call this a comedy. Yes. But I didn't laugh once. And I know it's harder for me uh, because right. apparently I'm curmudgeonly, but kind of like what part of this is comedic? Well, here's the thing. Oh, I will say like the first, I, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes, I could see that reading. But I mean... That whole marital stuff, like, I don't find any of that funny. Like, it's it's no. pretty dramatic and harrowing. It's like, they're cheating on each other. They're, like, being awful to each other. And even, like, her getting drunk with her student in the car. Like, this is more sad than it is funny, for me, at yeah. least. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too, I don't for know. one last pop. Sad, whatever, too, like, a white nighty about this. But it's like, no, it just doesn't feel funny to me in any of those sequences. Well, she's sobbing and the student opens up his zipper and he says, one last blowjob. Is that meant to be a joke? Like, I the guess. whole thing is fucking revolting like the parts that i will say are charming and funny like his first meeting with his wife is like what does the ts stand for sure. it's like no, was totally like terribly shy. terribly shy now it's yeah. terribly sexy like okay that's yeah. fun charming cool a little that's like robin thing that's williams that's yeah. not the script right <laughs> he's charming 
right? Yeah. And he's funny. Anyways, uh, so I, oh, I wrote and, oh, that the down. other the other scene I think I, I really love is uh, the the prostitute who's played by Swoosie Kurtz, who I just love that name. Like Glenn Close, like treating it as like an anthropological study. It's mm-hmm. like, but mm-hmm. when you when you charge the money, like how does that work? Like, yeah. She really is interested. Do, like, do you find her that? sexy? Do you want to have sex with her? Like just treating it like she's is looking at monkeys in Borneo. Is that a bit of a call out to Clute and the psychiatrist asking whether she actually uh, enjoys mm. having sex with her clients? Not everything oh. is about Clute, Dave. Yeah. Anyways, uh, even that scene, uh, that's why I just couldn't understand Glenn Close's character. And in in that sense, I couldn't understand why she gets nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to sound like a Glenn Close hater. I think she's a great actress. Um, and maybe she's doing the best she can to just survive in this film. But I think because it's shot in such a strange way, her deadpanning the whole thing, I just couldn't understand why acting like a robot, a purely analytical mm-hmm. person, and then creating this uh, so-called feminist manifesto means that she performed it well. Like I, I just couldn't key into it. Well, I think I think again that is the book does handle this better because you have the purely analytical mother compared with the completely emotional son. Son, I think that right. is what the divide is supposed to be, and they both are trying to figure out the world together. Yeah, you got to shoot that different, right? Like even the camera angle's got to be maybe more. Uh, skewed so that I can understand she's not meant to be a human being. She's meant to be this sort of like caricature of something, but I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. It is so true though. Like the one element about like his mother becoming like this best-selling novelist for her little manifesto and him trying to be the struggling writer who publishes like three books that don't really go anywhere. It is so true how certain things, it doesn't matter if yours is better or worse. It's about timing. And it is true. Like there is so much that has to be said about timing for certain things just to become popular yeah. to become a big thing yeah i mean uh, the concept around that i didn't have a problem with mm-hmm. i didn't have a problem with uh, them getting hate mail and like the response from the general public or that something so controversial would become a bestseller you know maybe the joke of uh i've bought your mother's book three times because my husband keeps burning it and is is that funny i don't know yeah. the random plane through the house oh, yeah the plane through the house, someone... like, like there can't be another thing that happens so this is a great buy i'm like okay i can understand how that is like a funny setup but i don't know i i, I can I, I keep going back to the the way that this is captured and the tone that continually happens there's that moment where there he just places the camera and just lets them walk away from the camera mm. i kept checking my watch like how long much longer is this going to go for yeah. like this is not an interesting conversation to hold on it for this long i think it undercuts the comedy almost in some cases because there's even that one scene near the end that actually did make me chuckle i, I will admit to that which is like they're at like the diner. It's like we're having fun, right? It's like gives them their it's like, eat your damn yeah, meals. Being an asshole, yeah. We sure are having fun, Dad. I'm like that's pretty funny. The little line reading that the kid gives. <laughs> it's because but, uh, uh, you need more time being yelled at by a parent. Anyways, I, I think it fails pretty much at everything it tries to do, save yeah. like some a couple of performances and some isolated scenes. Why do people like this movie so much, Kyle? <laughs> Have you been on Letterboxd? We'll put we'll get comments on YouTube all about why people love this movie. It's not gonna yeah, it's not gonna go death in Venice level, but we're no, gonna get say, some hate on this thing. Even watching the Siskel and Ebert review, we'll we'll hear this in a moment. Like Siskel loved this movie. Like he was over the moon about this movie. Ebert was more like like I like some of this, but like at the end of it, I don't get it. It. Like, what is this movie even about? Like, he was so bewildered mm-hmm. by this movie. Yeah, He's like, I don't understand too. what this is about. We're done here. Let's do Critics' Choice here then. This is, of course, the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time that this film was released. Like I said, Roger Ebert was a bit bewildered by this. Um, still gave it three out of four stars. It's a high bewilderment. 
What are we to think of these people and the events in their lives? The novel was, I think, a tragic comic counterpoint between the collapse of middle-class family values and the rise of random violence in our society. A protest against the violence provides the most memorable image in the book, the creation of the Ellen James Society, a group of women who cut out their tongues in protest against what happened to Ellen James, who had her tongue cut out by a man. The bizarre behavior of the people in the novel, particularly Garp's mother, and the members of the Ellen Jamesians is a cross between activism and insanity, and there is a clear suggestion that without such behavior to hold them together, all these people would be unable to cope at all and would sign themselves into the nearest institution. As a vision of modern American life, Garp is bleak, but it has something to say. The movie, however, seems to believe that the book's characters and events are somehow real. Or, to put it another way, that the point of the book is to describe these colorful characters and their unlikely behavior. Although Robin Williams plays Garp as a relatively plausible, sometimes ordinary person, the movie never seems bothered by the jarring contrast between his cheerful pluckiness and the anarchy around him. I agree with that. I just rate it much lower than what he is <laughs> writing this yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just, K- you know, I just realized Ellen, yeah. what is it? Ellen, this guy probably just read Titus. <laughs> mm. Jesus. Uh, Pauline Kale outright hated this movie. She writes, what we react to at this movie is its breezy disassociation, which feels rather strange because of the ghoulishness of the material. This isn't false to the book, though, where Irving keeps laying groundwork for his later effects. So, and you're so thoroughly primed for the accidents that what happens isn't catastrophe, it's farce. How could the modern feminist movement, which is rooted in the sexual liberation of women, be inspired by a lust fighter like Jenny, a woman who is grandly contemptuous of all sexual desire, except for the sly purposes of satire, or the angry purposes of a writer swaddling his rage in trumps and tricks and reversals? It's when writers create straw men to attack that they expose what's bugging them, and Irving creates straw women. Garp's drillmaster mother and the Ellen Jamesians, Irving's hero goes on being mutilated over and over again and coming back smiling. John Irving also doesn't smile that much. And finally, a hysterical woman polishes off what's left of the wounded, cuckolded, bereaved Garp. Her whole point was that this whole movie is about castration. That is how she starts her review yeah. off, and it's, I guess, yeah. Well, there's so much sexual frustration that underpins at least mm-hmm. the movie. Again, I haven't read the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that I realize, you know, when you read some of the reviews, it's kind of like how... <laughs> I was getting upset about uh, Starstruck uh, mm. and the sense of nostalgia. I think people who read the book read the film differently, even if I, they're I upset by it, right? Yeah. Because they have all this context uh, about what it's meant to do. I also think that there might be a little bit of like, we love Robin Williams, so yeah. we like his performance perhaps. I saw one the- review, it was just like, hilarious. Robin Williams is hilarious. I'm like, that's not what this movie yeah, was. Like- it's not a fucking stand-up routine, right? right. He's getting fucking, he, got, he gets, spoiler alert, he dies. I think that that whole death sequence is just a mess. Where did that come from? And this creepy woman. Oh I know that does God. come out of nowhere, right? In the movie, I was like, whoa, why is this happening? That's what they mean. I was like, so many of these things, like, why, this ha- why is he being, who, who is this person? Like, things just kind of randomly happen. And it's like, and I why guess. Why are they threading that creepy, fucking psychotic little sister with the glasses throughout mm-hmm. maybe the first third, she disappears for the main act, and then all Comes of a sudden back. she appears in the church and then to murder him? Stupid. It's just a stupid, stupid thing. I mean, again, this might be looking at too much in a 2022 context, but it like, absolutely. If you want to put something in and foreshadow it and thread that through your movie, cool. But I still have to feel like it was earned with like there is some sort of yeah, give, thematic give us resonance. A reason. What is it about this girl that she hates him so much, right? Other than the dog. Uh, as Pauline Kale is bringing. No, because 
the girl with the glasses sicks the dog on them because sure. they're making out behind the fence in the first uh, interaction. Other than John Irving, apologist forward aside, uh, has some deep-seated fucking male chauvinist issues. <laughs> Whatever he thinks he wrote, because uh, this thing is insulting, frankly. I think this helps answer our questions that we ask here every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant, Dave? Well, I think no and no. I'm wrong, apparently, according to popular vote, but I think it's it's. Well, I don't think it holds up. I don't. I honestly don't think there's a question about whether this holds up or not. I really don't think this holds together as a movie. I think why it's not held up in like Robin Williams' career. Yeah, nobody actually remembers. That's like that one of the great exists. movies of the 80s. Like That's this right. is slowly being forgotten. Like you might be able to make a case for cultural relevance for some of the themes. But I mean, that's the book. I do not think the movie actually does it yeah. effectively. The movie doesn't handle it in any complexity or nuance or empathy. I don't, I don't think like you can't, I think make a case that this has anything to do with feminism, LGBTQ rights, it has nothing to do with marital, anything, not about fi- family dynamics. What is this movie about, Kyle? I, I don't think anybody knows. Yeah, I'm, I'm like Roger Ebert. Like at the end of this, I was like, what, so what am I supposed to take away from this movie? Like it's if it's just supposed to be whimsical and fun, cool, but it was not whimsical or fun for me to sit through no. this. If no. there is a major point about feminism or LGBTQ rights or like love or whatever, it's like, I didn't get any of that. It never no. transposed itself to me. And the other people I've read is like, well, it's well life and how it's messy and like how there's no clean ending. I'm like, I can even agree to that, but this movie isn't fun to watch. Like there's nothing about this movie that I enjoy. Well, if it's going to go that way, then it means that they're trying to give us a sense of valuing something. So they have that message where at the beginning when Garth's young, Glenn Close is like, oh, you know, uh, almost essentially like a life half, you know, a life mm-hmm. half lived or all that kind of shit. But that's not the life he leads. And so what's the point, you know, of watching this guy, you know, kind of bumble his way through? It's, ah, ah, so angry. I personally couldn't stop laughing. Well, that is what uh, Dave and I thought here, of course. But what do you think about this movie? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. We're going to get shot, find us on aren't we, Kyle? Twitter or Instagram with the handle <laughs> KDPSTM. Uh, we also release videos each week on YouTube to talk about the movie we're talking about that week. If you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given here for the year 1982, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And we'd also really love it if you could help support us monetarily so that you can, we can continue doing this podcast, not usher in the next apocalypse. You can go over to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes to this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free as well is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Let, let's get to that rating. Dave, out of five, what would you give the world according to Garp? This one's hard. Emotionally, it's a one, right? Um... Because I'm so angry about it. But I think that uh, it's not the actor's fault, right? Uh, no. I don't know enough of the context of the source material. I think I'm going to go with a two. Mm. Mostly because, like you said, there are moments in between uh, offense <laughs> where I'm like, oh, okay, I can maybe see why people like this. And then, uh, and then it offends me and I'm like, I cannot understand why anybody likes this. So it's just wavering all over the place. But it, it's not the worst movie we've seen we watch a lot of terrible movies Kyle. that's what i mean it's like i did not enjoy my time but i'm also probably going to forget this movie is even a thing in about a month from now so yeah. i can't bring up the vitriol like a one would would mean no, to me yeah one's pretty hateful so i'm giving it the exact same rating dave we're, we're twins here this week two mm-hmm. and two twinsies 
So that's going to go pretty low on our list, but it's going to enter the list at our number 17 position, right above Grease 2 and right <laughs> below Starstruck. That's where it's going to go that's with fair. our list. Yeah, I think that's fair. When I was editing the video for Starstruck, it started it started getting a hold of me, and I, I was like, oh man, I've watched this the stupid- The rage is coming back. <laughs> no, I was going the other way. I was like, I've watched this stupid fucking dance like 17 times to edit this piece. I'm like, you know what? I can see why people think it's fun. <laughs> oh my God. See, this is being inoculated. Melting times. my brain. We should we should do a new podcast project. There's some of those people who watch the same movie 52 times in a year. Oh like every week God. they watch the same movie and they start to go loopy, right? Yeah. Because it's like, I've seen this way too many times. So now I'm just focusing on the background actors. I'm just going to watch the background actors oh this time. Oh my God. Um, let's watch, find out what we're watching next week. I'm going to push this button. There's some similarities, I guess, from this movie to next week's movie we're gonna be watching victor victoria mm. next week dave have you ever watched victor victoria i don't know I've, i i know the name remember loving it but i it's a long time since i've seen victor victoria julie andrews uh directed by her husband blake edwards no maybe not who we got lots on wild rovers um but it's a Gross. it's a woman pretending to be a man oh, pretending to be a woman excellent that what, that's what that is movie is period about. drama now right Oh, I don't know. Actually, I don't remember if it's supposed to take place in 1982 or if it's supposed to take place earlier. Regardless, in the 19th century. Or it's a musical. We'll find sort out. Sort of. Okay. All right. I like Julie Andrews. If we want to talk about Gravitas. Julie. So, you uh, know what other movie I watched because of this other podcast I'm listening to for the first time was Ten. Have you ever watched Ten? No, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Oh, really? It's like very famous because Bo Derek comes out of the ocean and stuff like that in her cornrows. Is it a Dudley like whatever? Dudley Moore is starring Oh, okay. In it. I have seen that movie. Okay, yes, yes. The movie is not good. No. But Julie Andrews plays his like fiance and is like oh. so great in it. And like, oh. Why wasn't this the entire movie? Why were you wow. just here the entire it's time? It's Dudley Moore and it was yeah. about breasts. But, it is uh, basically about breasts. Yeah, that's his whole shtick. <laughs> uh, all right, Dave. Well, I'm done. I don't know what to say. Fuck. It's <laughs> uh, a bad movie. <laughs> it's a bad movie. The Dentist coming back next episode. All right. Bye, everyone. Oh really? He can do everything. Well can he fall in love with me? Didn't think so.